Thanks for joining us. The following is a presentation of Ignite Global Ministries and features the teaching of Pastor Ben Dixon. Pastor Ben has a vision of strengthening the church to impact the world. He serves as lead pastor at Northwest Foursquare Church in Federal Way, Washington. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. We're only going to be able to look at maybe 12, 13 verses today. Depends on how far I go. Obviously, we're looking at the transfiguration. If you've already looked into this, yeah, it is 13 verses. So grab your Bibles, Mark chapter 9, and let's go ahead and pray as we open the Word of God together today. Father, we do thank you today for your Word, and we're excited, Lord, that uh, as we open it up, we know that there's revelation For each one of us, we pray, God, that you would help us to understand the Word as it was written, as it was intended, that you would also, by the Holy Spirit, give us revelation for the lives that we live today. We want to know you. We want to walk with you. We want to bear fruit that remains for the glory of King Jesus. And so we thank you today for everything that you're doing, everything uh, that you want to do, and we yield to you and your Spirit in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You're in Mark chapter 9. Let me go ahead and just remind you, in Mark chapter 8, there were two events where loaves and fish were multiplied for thousands to eat, but that's what we're reading about in Mark chapter 8. We saw the loaves and the fish multiplied to feed four plus thousand. We know Jesus has a clarifying moment with the apostle Peter, and he's asking the disciples, who do men say that I am? And they have these various answers, and, and Peter stands up and says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. And of course, whether you read this in Mark's Gospel or the Gospel of Matthew, you're going to have some detail, not difference, but you're going to have more detail in the book of Matthew. And so he has that moment, that clarifying moment of who Jesus is and who they believe Jesus is, and that bleeds right into Mark chapter 9, that it's almost like seamless, Mark chapter 8 to Mark chapter 9. So let's go ahead and read these 13 verses with that in mind. And here's what it says, Mark chapter 9 and verse 1, and Jesus was saying to them, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. He was transformed. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be, and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. And so here we have 
This picture, as I've already said, Matthew chapter 18 seamlessly rolls, or sorry, Mark chapter 8 seamlessly rolls into Mark chapter 9, where you have Peter's confession of the Christ. Jesus explains a little bit more about he must die and suffer. Really, he's talking about his death. He's talking about his resurrection, sort of shifting their eschatological view. At this point, you know, you look in uh, Mark chapter 8, and he's making it very clear that he is the Christ and he is the Messiah. And now Peter declares that very thing. So Jesus unfolds some of his plan to them. And they're still just kind of confused because, once again, their theology is such that it doesn't make sense for them that Jesus is the Messiah and some of the things that he's saying is going to happen um, really is the case because they just have not heard that. That's not been their teaching growing up. So you can imagine the massive shift that is happening in their mind and in their heart. And so we sort certainly have to respect that because it isn't that they didn't know anything. It's that what they knew was based on certain, ex or certain expectations were based on what they did know. It wasn't that everything they knew was wrong, it was their interpretation was wrong, and the teaching of that day had a lot of error, as it were, because of what they thought would transpire. And so here we have this moment of transfiguration, and I'm going to do my best to clarify some things, because I think occasionally what we'll do is we'll just run through the transfiguration and not talk much about it. And so I just want to give probably just some interpretation to these 13 verses so that we can just understand it. And then maybe if we have time to extrapolate some principles. Sometimes when we read the Bible, there are principles that apply to us right here and right now, and that's great. But the reality is when we read the Scripture, what we want to do is make sure that we, under we understand what is being said, what it means, and then what it means to us. What it means to us is simply, at times, the weight of Scripture that um, has unfolded to the point of where we are today, it may not have like a practical takeaway. And sometimes I think in, in our Western mindset, and also, of course, in the day and age in which we live, based on so many devotionals, we're always looking to get sort of a, a takeaway that we can apply today from the Bible. And I think that can be actually dangerous, which is why I've discouraged a lot of people from uh, relying too heavily on devotionals, because a lot of times the goal is just to get something for myself today, when in reality, the real goal is to know the Word of God, is to have the Word of God in our heart, and also to understand that the Word of God is an account from Genesis to Revelation, and the fullness of the Word is what we're most concerned about, not just getting something for my day. And so, although it's important for us to have applicable points and extrapolate principles, guiding principles, that we can live out in our world today, we don't want to push that so hard that we're making things up and we're making things happen. And so this is one of those days where it could just be highly informational. It may not be as practical. And I want to warn you in case you're somebody that's looking for that, that takeaway. The takeaway is the weight of Scripture is true. And this is part of the unfolding account of Jesus Christ that makes uh, that makes sense in all of his, this story as, uh, as, it, as it pertains to us as Christians. So, verse 1, here's what it says, Jesus was saying to them, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they sing, see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Jesus makes this prophetic declaration that some among the disciples 
would actually experience the power of the coming kingdom before they die. And there are different interpretations of what that means. Some people, uh, scholars think that he's referring uh, to the, the, uh, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, but I don't believe that's what this means at all. In fact, what I believe that Jesus is referring to is six days later, what it says here in verse 2, that he's going to take Peter, James, and John up with him on the mountain, Mount Hermon most likely, and this is, uh, this is what he's referring to, is that they're going to encounter the coming glory for a moment, and it's going to be something that Peter's going to write about in his second letter, Second Peter chapter 1. I'll refer to that in just a moment. But isn't that really powerful, is that Jesus makes this prophetic declaration that some of them, Peter, James, and John, are going to encounter the power of the kingdom, and they do. And the account, I believe, gives us some uh, insight into what exactly happens. And here's what it says, six days later. Now just park there for a moment. You might remember, or maybe you know about this, that sometimes it seems like there's a discrepancy in the Synoptic Gospels. We're talking about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is uh, fundamentally different in that it reveals other things or it fills in other things. I think 90% of the book of John has different accounts than, uh, than the three synoptic gospels. Not that it's in conflict at all, but that it fills in other parts of the account of Jesus Christ. And so it has a focus, but the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I mean, it's like 75 to 85% of it kind of lines up and there's different details that get filled in depending on the writer that we're reading. And so here you have in, um, I believe it's Matthew and Mark placed the transfiguration six days before the book of Luke says eight days. And so the way to explain six verses eight could simply be that Luke was counting the day of, and he was count that day, and he was counting the day of. These, these um, discrepancies, as it were, most of them can be solved by just simple math or addition or, or just an understanding of how things work or were seen. Um, obviously there's going to be some discrepancies, but just to be honest with you, the fact that the discrepancies are so minor and most of them can be so easily explained just doesn't give much food for the critic to say that the Bible is completely inaccurate and has thousands of discrepancies. I'm, I'm challenged on these. Every year I get a few challenges in scripture where there seems to be a discrepancy. And every time I look into it, it is so minor and it is so simple that you just wonder why a critic would even want to bring it up. To be honest with you, I know many of us spend our life studying the Bible, and what we're looking for is not to defend it per se, but we want to study it and just see what it says. That's really my heart. I mean, I don't have to defend God or His Word. His, his person and His Word, God is capable of defending. But whenever I get some kind of criticism, I want to look at it as it is, and I want to study it because I want to understand it. First, I want to understand how, ev how everyone's going to see this. Then I want to see if there's a quick and easy solution. Is there a simple solution when you look at textual criticism? Or is it a bigger thing? Was it a scribe edition? What do the manuscripts say? What does it say in the original language? That's where you start to dig. And so far, I haven't found a discrepancy that anybody has brought to me that I think is big enough after studying and looking into it that has somehow caused me some conflict over the scripture. In fact, the Bible, just from a natural perspective, is just such an incredibly fascinating document. If all we saw the Bible as was just this natural book, historical, 
poetic, prophetic, eschatological, if, if we saw it and we just didn't think spiritually and we weren't impacted by it, didn't believe it was God's word, which I do, I, I think there's no way that you could come up with another view other than to say that this book is entirely fascinating, impacting, influential, powerful, and the greatest historical document that we have today. Honestly, I don't know how you could come to another conclusion. So for somebody to dismiss the Bible, um, even on a natural level, it shows that there is an enemy attack and assault against the Lord and against the scriptures. But we know that, um, that God will prevail because he is Lord and his word is true. So here we have, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and brought them up on a high mountain. We believe Mount Hermon most likely, and he was transfigured before them. Now, I just want to say to you, Peter, James, and John, this is not the first time that these three are part of Jesus's inner circle and get to see things that others don't see and get to be a part of something that others don't get to be a part of. Clearly, Jesus has the 12, but these three are invited into these special moments to encounter something with Jesus. Now, why is it those three? We don't know. Typically, we would say that these were the most trusted, but I think there was a purpose in the heart of Jesus to bring these three because he does everything with purpose. And that may be simply because God wanted them to be able to explain, write, and communicate what they saw and encountered for a different time. That's what I believe. Every encounter with Jesus, every encounter with the Lord has a purpose to it, and God is going to use that in that person's life and through that person's life for a reason. And I could say that's been the case for me, although I don't have any uh, real biblical weight to any encounters that I've had with God, but they certainly have anchored my heart and my mind and my life in the Lord. Whenever I've encountered His presence, whenever I've had um, some kind of touch of the Lord in my life, that absolutely has worked for some greater purpose 100%. And so this has that and so much more. So Peter writes about it in 2 Peter chapter 1. We know that. We know John is going to reference it. He's going to write um, not only his gospel, but he's going to write three letters as well, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And so this is, this is really important. So here's what we read also in verse 3. His garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. That's just an interesting little detail. No launderer could bleach them. No launderer could whiten them to look like this. And what are we talking about? We're talking about the manifested glory of God. He is transfigured. He is transformed. He, 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 he basically is transformed into this glory, he, this, the, the Shekinah of God, the glory of the Lord. We see that there are many passages in the Bible that refer to the manifested glory of the Lord. I'm thinking of Psalm 104, verse 2, Daniel 7, 9. 1 Timothy 6, 16 actually says that God dwells in unapproachable light. Think about that, unapproachable light. And there's a, there's a lot in Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, which we're going to study in the future as a church, it says that Jesus, has his hair is like... Is, is like wool, his eyes are like flames of fire. He just has this manifested glory to the point where the apostle John falls down, down on the ground as though he was a dead man. I mean, this is incredible. The Jesus that John walked with for three years when he encounters the, the risen, resurrected, glorified Christ as he truly is, when John encounters that Jesus, 
it says he falls down as though he was a dead man. Isn't it amazing that he walked with him for those years, but he, he, his, seeing him in his glory caused him to fall down at his feet. It's an incredible thing. And so we see this manifested glory in his life. And then in verse 4, Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, Elijah would represent the prophets. Moses would represent the law. In Luke 9.31, it says, Jesus spoke with Moses uh, and Elijah about his departure, about his death. So the book of Luke gives us a little bit of detail as to what they were talking about. And these three apostles got to listen in on that conversation. That'd be pretty amazing. I don't know if you've ever stopped and to think about this, but here we have the disciples. Three of the disciples get to hear this roundtable discussion of Jesus's death, where you have Moses, Elijah, and Jesus in this glorified state. Oh my gosh, it's an incredible thing. And it's important to realize that the Jewish mind was expecting the return of Elijah. We see that in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5 and 6. And also, as well as the return of Moses, I don't know if you remember when we did the study on Deuteronomy chapter 18, but there's this messianic prophecy, and it's coming through the mouth of Moses, and it's really pointing to the person of Jesus. But I do think, once again, that in terms of eschatology, that, that, that some things weren't always understood. And so Moses says that God will raise up a prophet from among the people of Israel that will be like Moses. All right, this was a messianic prophecy, and I'm going to reference it in just a little bit here as to why this matters, because I believe that there's um, the Father evokes that promise when He speaks over the Son. I, I, I believe that we see that clearly. But there was an expectation for not only Elijah, but also Moses to return in some form or way. That it, There wasn't a lot of understanding on how things would look exactly, but the scribes would teach this specifically. And so here we have, I think, a confusing moment for the disciples, an exciting moment. They're not sure why or what exactly is happening, but there is a sense in which some of this was supposed to happen, but they're just not sure how this is all uh, meant to lay out. And so we also read here in verse 5, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, which can also mean master, it can mean teacher, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know when to answer, for be they became terrified. Now, there are several things that Peter could have meant. Scholars uh, do suggest a lot of uh, interpretation here. Um, Peter could have meant, he could have been thinking about Exodus 29, 42, which refers to God speaking to Moses at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And so here they have this moment where they're experiencing the glory of God. They're seeing Moses and Elijah and Jesus glorified. And so he's like, hey, let's set up like kind of a tent of meeting, so to speak. He's just thinking of, of the experience of God's presence. And that could have just been that simple. It also could have meant that the word for shelters or tabernacles here in the New American Standard Version could also be a reference to what you read about in Leviticus 23, which would be the Festival of Tabernacles. Uh, where the idea would be to erect the temporary dwellings commemorating the journey through the wilderness. I mean, this could act actually be that reference. And that makes a lot of sense that they would set up these temporary dwellings, these temporary tabernacles, 
um, commemorating what they already had practiced as a Jewish people. And so he's thinking, let's do that right here on the mountain. This is surely an incredible experience, so it could have been that reference. And it could have just simply been um, a response from Peter saying, let's put temporary shelters here to stay here because this is an incredible encounter. And so that's Peter's response to what's going on. And no comment comes back from Jesus, but the the account continues in verse 7, a cloud formed, which represents again the manifest presence of God, the Shekinah, the glory of the Lord, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Verse 8, all at once they looked around, saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. Now, um, we know that the cloud is seen as a symbol of God's manifested presence, Exodus 24, 15, Exodus 20, verse 22. We also see God speaking from heaven in Exodus 20, and we also might want to reflect back to where God spoke from heaven. This is over Jesus' baptism, Mark chapter 1, and he said, this is my beloved son um, in whom I am well pleased. But I'm thinking of Uh, I'm thinking of something else here. What I'm thinking of is Deuteronomy chapter 18, where it says that God will raise up a prophet from among the people of Israel like Moses. And in specific, in Deuteronomy 18, it says, you will listen to him. All right, so this is, I believe, evoking that command, and it's, it's really evoking that promise that it's a messianic fulfillment of a messianic prophecy, or it's at least the stamp that this is that. Really interesting to me about Deuteronomy chapter 18, because that can be profoundly misunderstood in uh, a lot of the interpretations of today, but it was a messianic prophecy, and that messianic prophecy was clearly fulfilled, but the promise of it was evoked. Listen to him. Jesus is the prophet who was to come. He was more than than a prophet, but he was the prophet that was spoken of there in Deuteronomy chapter 18. So it's important to know that a lot of times in an experience in the New Testament, it's a reference back to the Old Testament, right? I can't tell you how many times the book of Deuteronomy is is referenced in the gospel accounts, but it's a lot. And so we want to know that when something is happening or something is being said, Where is the reference in the Old Testament? Because a lot of times there is a reference, even though it's not in quotations. But it is an experience. It is a fulfillment um, of something that was stated, predicted, prophesied in the Old Testament. And so what I love doing is I love seeing the fulfillment. Because again, it's like Nobody could make this up. You just have to understand this. The beauty of the Bible is that the more you study it, you find how they overlap, they connect. We're talking 40 authors over a period of 1,600 years, three different languages, and the continuity, right? The unity of subject, structure, and content is just so beautiful because it's not like people sat around and said, how can I make this reference that? How can I make this say this? It's not like everybody was doing that. And it's, it's, it's just an amazing thing to see how all of this is it fulf, it's fulfilled. There's nothing like it in all of the world. On a natural level, there's nothing like the Bible 
for these things to overlap, for these things to connect, it is profoundly supernatural. It is profoundly supernatural. And so if you get anything out of today, let me just put a stamp on how powerful, how true, how amazing the Bible is and that it is God's word. If you've ever struggled with the Bible being God's word, friend, let me encourage you. It is, this book is beautiful. Maybe you would say, Pastor Ben, I don't understand the Bible very well. All you got to do is apply yourself. I am telling you, you are not wasting your time. You are not wasting your life. This book is not a book. This text is not merely a text. It is living. It is alive. It is full of life and it is connected. It has got unity. And so I just want to... Um, just draw our attention to the beauty of the Bible. Because when I read Deuteronomy 18, and then I read Mark chapter 9, and I see the fulfillment, and I look at how the Father speaks over the Son, and it's recorded here by Mark, and later Peter references this as an experience that he had. Second Peter chapter 1, he says, we have the prophetic word made more sure. As the day dawns, the morning star rises in our hearts. He's referring that they saw the glory of God through Jesus Christ, that the kingdom glory manifested on the mountain of transfiguration. And he's saying, because I saw what I saw in Mark chapter 9, it causes me to know that the prophetic word is absolutely certain. And when he's writing to people who are struggling and suffering, he reminds them, not just based on, on the written word, but also how God had fulfilled up until that point the word that had been predicted and prophesied, which encourages us to believe that whatever is not yet fulfilled will be fulfilled. In other words, because we have so much fulfilled, because we have so much written that has been revealed, we can be encouraged that the rest of what we haven't seen happen is going to happen. Now, I'm excited about this. Because it's real, because it's true. Whatever we are lacking in hope, we can be reminded that there is so much hope to be had because God is not done with what he is doing in this world. And that is encouraging. And that is why when the apostles wrote their letters, that's why when Paul wrote his epistles, he could say the things that he said. He was built on a foundation of hope, knowing that the word of God was true, that it was going to be fulfilled, that it is being fulfilled. And I'm excited about that. You're excited about that. If you don't have a neighbor to give a high five to, just go ahead and give a quarantine air high five to yourself. Amen and amen. I can't help it. I'm trying to talk to you today based on a podcast, but I keep preaching away and it's just what happens when you read God's word. It gets you exciting. Nothing gets me as excited as the word of God. And isn't that what you want from your pastor? I hope so. I hope so. I do. All right, here we are in verse nine. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the son of man rose from the dead. Why would he do that? Well, very clearly, Je Jesus' messianic mission would not be understood apart from the cross and the resurrection. So when he said to them, don't tell anyone, he had done this before to them. It would have been confusing and confused his mission and what he was doing, because it's very, very clear that Jesus hadn't yet done everything he had c come to do. And their eschatology 
and what they expected from the Messiah is fundamentally different from what Jesus was actually going to do. Now, the end result is the same, but how that was going to transpire was fundamentally different. And so with their expectation and Jesus's actual way in the world up into the cross and resurrection being so different, he says, don't tell anyone until, he says here, um, the Son of Man rose from the dead. Now, you go into verse 10. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant, because here you see it. They did not understand. Now it was clear from chapter 8 and chapter 9, they knew Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus had made it plain to them right before the transfiguration. So eight days before, six, eight days before the transfiguration, Peter says, you're the Christ, makes it very clear, puts the stake in the ground. Chapter 9, transfiguration happens. Now they've got no doubt. Peter, James, and John, they got it locked. Jesus is the Messiah. So now they're looking for specific things to unfold. Jesus knows they know they think that. So he says, don't tell anyone. It's going to be confusing, guys. So they seize on this statement. And so they're thinking in themselves, what in the world uh, does this mean? Jesus is going to rise from the dead. They just did not know. And so what we have to do then is look at verses 11 through 13, and that's where the disciples ask a question. And this is what it is. They say to him, why is it then that the scribes say Elijah must come first? Because they just saw Elijah, okay? And the chronology of it, the confusion of it, and how this is kind of laying out is different from what they had been taught. So what did it mean for Elijah to come? Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, 5 promises that Elijah is going to come. So the scribe teaching on this um, was not based on a rabbinical tradition. It was actually based on the Bible. And so that's good. Malachi's prophecy was well known in the Jewish community. And the disciples were trying to harmonize what they had heard um, and what they had just experienced seeing Elijah. The scribes and the Pharisees no doubt argued that Jesus could not be the Messiah because Elijah had not yet appeared. So now the disciples were looking for an interpretation, and that's why they asked the question. And so here's what happens. Jesus says in verse 12, Elijah does come first and restore all things. You know what he does there? He affirms the teaching of the scribes. That's what he does. Jesus right there affirms the teaching of the, of the scribes. What does that do to the disciples? It confuses them. What? Okay, we just asked you a question because of what we've been taught and what we just experienced, and they don't seem to harmonize, so we're trying to figure out what this actually means, and it does mean something different, or I don't fully understand it, so will you help us understand this? And Jesus affirms the scribes' teaching, of course, but then the second thing that he does is he says the prophecies about Elijah uh, coming were fulfilled in the coming of John the Baptist. Now, you may not remember this, but in Luke chapter 1 and verse 17, what's prophesied over John is that he will come in the spirit and power of Elijah, and he will fulfill Malachi chapter 4. The sons were turned to the father and the father to the sons. That prophecy is prophesied over John in that John will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And so Jesus says in another place, in another gospel, if you can receive it, John the Baptist was the Elijah to come. And so he satisfies their question and that John was the forerunner of Christ. And so this is interesting because, again, the scribes' teaching, well, let's back up. The Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders would have debated Jesus not being the Messiah based on one of the principles that Elijah had not come. Jesus now makes it known to the disciples 
that John the Baptist was the Elijah who was to come, which was prophesied over John's birth. And so here we have another fulfillment of Scripture, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, I believe it is, and Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5 and 6. Again, here's what I want us to get out of this today. What we see for sure, all right, is that Jesus is transfigured and the kingdom glory is revealed to three of the disciples. It was important for this to be revealed to them because they later gave their lives for the gospel. And Peter specifically references this account when he writes his letter to suffering and struggling Christians who are dispersed abroad or they're scattered. And so this was very important. And this to us, it actually fulfills, or at least it teaches the fulfillment of multiple prophecies. Can you imagine if we're just going through 13 verses, how many verses in the gospel accounts bring fulfillment to the Old Testament and the prophecies that were written? Nobody could make this stuff up. You can't make this stuff up. If you could, I mean, the chances are like one in a million. But here's what I want us to land on. Prophecy in the Old Covenant is fulfilled in the new covenant again and again in the coming of Jesus, in the life of Jesus, in the teaching of Jesus, in the three years of Jesus's ministry, in the death of Jesus, in the resurrection of Jesus, and in the promise of the coming Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and so on. Here's what we know. Prophecy in scripture is important. Prophecy revealed and fulfilled in Scripture is important. What it does is strengthen our faith. The more that we know what was written, when it was fulfilled, how it was fulfilled, helps us to build the strongest of foundation. Why? Because in the day and age in which we're living, people get confused all of the time. People develop teachings in a vacuum of suffering and struggling. It's amazing what transpires. It's amazing the teachings that I've heard even in the last five, six months, even in the last 10 years. I've heard so much teaching. And what it points to is is that we just don't know the Bible as well as we should. You do not need to be an incredible scholar in order to study the Bible and really see that what God has given to us in His Word is being fulfilled, some of it has been fulfilled, and all of it will be fulfilled. This gives us the basis of faith and confidence that we need to continue to look to God, press into His Word, His mission, His Spirit, what He's doing today, and it encourages our heart that God is at work. No matter what is happening in the world, God is at work. You know what I see in the disciples? They were constantly confused. They had teaching. Their experiences didn't line up with their teaching. Jesus was patient, and he brought them into encounter and experience, and they experienced things. Certainly, there was a purpose for that, but we just see the patience and the love of Jesus Christ to bring his disciples into this place of seeing what they needed to see so that they could do what they were supposed to do. God is revealing his word to you and I, and he is walking with us in such a way where we could build our life on his word, have confidence in what he's doing, and move forward together. Don't be discouraged. Maybe you're down. Maybe you're discouraged. Maybe you're disillusioned. Maybe these times are hitting you really hard. I get it. I really do. But there is a big picture that we all need to have, and that picture starts and ends with God's holy word. God is showing us something today, that his glory is coming, like God's glory 
not only fills, but will fill the whole earth. And we are a part of the unfolding plan of Jesus coming back to this world, making himself known completely and thoroughly to every person. And our job is to help everyone know the good news of Jesus Christ, that they might bow their knee and confess Jesus as Lord today before it's too late. Before it's too late. The reason I can smile is because I know God is at work. Amen. God is at work. Be encouraged today because God is up to something and it's glorious and it's beautiful and he's, he's given us his word. It is written about and it is being fulfilled. Amen and amen. We're encouraged today and that's a beautiful thing no matter what we're walking through. There is a big picture to, be, to see. Let's go ahead and pray into that. You know what I want to pray today? I want to pray that God would reveal his word to us, that God would give us a hunger for his word that God would give us a hunger to dig. It's not some arduous task. It's a blessing and a privilege that we are able to dig into God's holy word. And so let's pray into that today. Father, we do thank you today for your word. We thank you that it gives life to us. It says that it's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It shows us where we are. It shows us where we're going. And not just us as individuals, but really the whole world. Your word encompasses this entire earth every person on the planet. You have a plan and you are about it. And we ask, Lord, that you would help, help us by encouraging us that the word of God has, is, and will be fulfilled. And we are a part of your unfolding plan as we lay hold of what it says and implement the principles and the truths for the, of, of what we understand about Scripture into the world that we live in. I pray that you would encourage our hearts. I pray that you would give us confidence today. I pray that we could stand on your word boldly, courageously, not backing down in any way. Help us to know you. Help us to know your word. Help us to walk with you entirely and completely in the days in which we're living. And we thank you for this confidence and this boldness today. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.